everybody here tonight, particularly any visitors we have. Um, shortly after we have the word, we're going to be giving an invitation for anybody today that has not been baptised. Uh, behind this curtain we have a baptism tank and we have all the necessary equipment like bathers and towels and so on. Anybody that does want to get baptised, why would you want to get baptised? Because it's part of salvation. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. So baptism is very important. It's not just a icing on the cake sort of experience where you bury your old way of life that God might give you a, a new way of life. So that'll be um, later on today, before midnight. We'll, um, no, hopefully in nowhere near that time. But Well, let's say before 3 o'clock, that invitation will go out again. So uh, so let's have a look at the word today. Um Title of my talk today is the word of the word of the Lord came. I'll add to that a little bit later on, but just the thought that the word of the Lord came, and um, most of us are travelling along through life, and all of a sudden the word of the Lord came, and it changed everything, changed their whole direction, everything in our life. And maybe you want to dwell a little bit on the thought with some incidences. I give a couple of testimonies also of where it almost didn't come. And it was sort of quite miraculous that that particular person got to hear the Word of God. We all hear it, and it's always miraculous if we do hear it, but maybe more in the general run of life. But just now and again, there's maybe somebody who you would think, "Why? Well, how did they ever come to it? Or it was so close that they didn't come to it, and yet they did. I want to start off with uh, Luke chapter uh, 3, where this particular passage is, that I'm half quoting, the word of the Lord came. Luke chapter 3, um, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of um, Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip the tetrarch of Idumea, and of the region of Trachonitis, Oh, it sounds like a disease to me when I read that. And Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Ze- Zechariah, in the wilderness. Um, so all these other very important people, starting off with the Caesar, Tiberius, and then going down through all the other political leaders and uh, military leaders and so on, the word of the Lord didn't go to any of them, is what it's really saying. So it bypassed all of the what you'd think the important people that should uh, sort of be recognised, and it came to this man called John, who was not in some palace or some place of importance. He was out in the wilderness, and the word of the Lord came to him. You know, when I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, um, I thought of another John, who where the word of the Lord came unto him in the wilderness place called Madamakla, and that is in the wilderness. And um, got to think about the chances of Pastor John coming to the Lord was um, in some ways quite miraculous because he was very churchy and very um, sort of Methodist-y and um, was sort of the person that would suffer badly with self-righteousness, as a lot of people do in the religious world. But and had to, you sort of think, well, a hard person to come to the Lord would be some gangster or murderer or, and I'm not saying that's not difficult, but often the most difficult 
people, and even Jesus said it, people of importance, people of wealth, people of uh, of religion, you know, who are steeped in religion, find it hard to come. And uh, back in uh, 1957, the end of 1957, the word of the Lord came unto that John, John Coleman, out in the wilderness, our senior pastor, for those who don't know that. And uh, he um, he almost didn't come. He almost didn't come. In actual fact, he didn't actually want to come. And the Lord overcomes that, doesn't he, at times, because um, he'd already been spoken to by a guy called John Borden, another lay preacher in the Methodist Church, and hadn't really registered what John was saying. And on the day, just a couple of days before he got saved, Pastor John went to a little church just down off the edge of his farm, actually, mostly built by the Cormans for all I know, the only very small building just outside the entrance to the uh, the Corman farm at Matamakla. And uh, he gave, uh, I think it was actually the other guy that day that gave the talk, a guy called Keith Mapperson. And Keith Mapperson was a Pentecostal who had come out of the Apostolic Church and had uh, had quite a miraculous healing. And through his wife inheriting, inheriting some land up near Sejuna that uh, he'd moved up into a region. And Pastor John thinks he was the only spirit-filled person in that region at the time. It's sort of hard to imagine that. But that's there was Pentecost and, and those who were spirit-filled were very thin on the ground. And he gave the talk this day. And when they were standing outside the church, that he joined the Methodist church because there was nothing else there at the time. He said to Pastor John, are you going to the revival meeting tonight? Pastor John didn't even know the revival meeting was that same day. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to it. And then this young um, Roy Coomey, his name was, was a labourer on the, a farm labourer on Pastor John's farm and come to church with him. Um, he said, I want to go to that meeting. So in the end, Pastor John said, all right, I'll take you. He didn't have a car or anything. I'll take you long as we go to our own churches first. So that Sunday was that was Sunday morning that discussion happened. And then that Sunday night, Pastor John went to the Methodist church and Roy Coombe went to the Anglican church. That was his normal church. And then the meeting started at 8 o'clock after church had finished. And uh, pretty reliable. It would only go for one hour, which it always does uh, in the normal churches and he went along that night and he heard the full gospel and it was um, two nights later, as we know, on the New Year's Eve, uh, 1957, 58, that he received the Holy Spirit right around midnight and, and came to the Lord. The point I want to make, though, is that he went to a meeting he didn't even want to go to, he didn't even know it was on. And yet two days later, I think it was on the 29th, two days later on the uh, the 31st, he came to the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness and he wasn't even maybe even thinking about that at the time. It wasn't easy though for Pastor John because of his churchiness. At the time, even when I met him a couple of years later, I'm still a little bit churchy if I might dare. Don't tell your dad I said that somebody's sitting out there. And uh, it took a little while for that sort of to rub off. And um, he, uh, when you look back, I keep going with his testimony because it's quite, I think, miraculous that he actually made it. Because um, the night he received the Holy Spirit, and most of you know this part, 
when he got down to seek for the Holy Spirit, he quoted a hymn over a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise and so on. And he thought, well, that's all about tongues, so I'll quote that and I'll speak in tongues. And the guy who was praying was moving around the room praying with people. When he came to Pastor John, he said, what are you doing? Quite blunt this guy was. Our Linda's name was. And he said, what are you doing? John said, I'm quoting a hymn. And he said, oh, you'll never receive the Holy Spirit doing that. You've got to say hallelujah and praise the Lord. So, so John was a little bit offended by that, but he did it. He did what he was told. And he came back around again and Pastor John had stopped. And uh, Lenday said to Pastor John, he said, what's wrong now? And John said, I can't say hallelujah properly. And, and Lenday said, ah, we're starting to get somewhere now. Just keep doing that. Well, before he ever got back to Pastor John, he received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And, um, but even then it wasn't all over. Pastor John had this wonderful idea. Why don't we get the Revival Fellowship people and the young people, he was the young people's leader for the Methodist Church, and we'll all have a lovely day down at the beach. You can imagine how that went well. There were little debates going on everywhere. And uh, later on the Methodist minister said to Pastor John, look, um, you don't need to leave the Methodist Church. We need this experience and young men like you to be in our church. And uh, Pastor John went back to Lenda and he said, Oh, look, I think I'll stay with the Methodist Church. They need me in part. And Lenday didn't say anything. He just opened the Bible up to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, where it says there, they have a form of godliness, but from such, and, but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. And that was it. Pastor John was very Bible minded. And through all of that, he came to the Lord. So, as I said, I really do think the Word of God came to John in that wilderness experience, and we've or benefited from that. But look at some more scripture here. I want to read on a bit on John, this John. Verse 3, and he, came, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So going back to what it says though, first of all at the end of verse 2, that the word of God came unto John, uh, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. We don't know exactly what that means. We know that from his birth, the Holy Spirit, maybe not the way we have it as the born-again experience, but the Holy Ghost was with John the Baptist right from his birth and that he would have obviously known the story of his father being struck dumb when he doubted the 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 experience of him becoming a father, him and his wife Elizabeth having a child, and because of his unbelief he was dumb. And the, as you know, the, the, it, that spell or whatever you might call it was broken when they were trying to get him to say somebody else's name, even his own name, to be this, the name of his, of his newborn child. And the Lord had already said, no, his name shall be John. And when, uh, when he got a bit of paper and he wrote on it, his name shall be John, he didn't need the bit of paper five seconds later because he got his voice back. And he's a great man of faith. So John would have known all that. At what point he went and lived in the wilderness? He's only a few months different, I think six months older than Jesus. Um, so he, he's around 30 also, or 31 or something like that. What happened in all that time? When did he leave home? It says he lived in the wilderness. He didn't live with mum and dad. I don't know if they ever had any more children. I would sort of think they didn't. Mostly just an only child. And somewhere there he went out into the wilderness. Maybe for years he communed with the Lord. We know he lived exceedingly basic 
just the sort of animal skins and lived on wild sort of food that he could find out in the wilderness. Very sort of basic. Never much he never cut his hair. He was a Nazarite, so uh, he would have he would have looked like the woolly man from the outback from uh, anything you could imagine. And um, and then it says the word of the Lord came to him. There's almost maybe the thought is at that particular point how that happened or whether God literally spoke out to him loud, John, the reason you were born and you were miraculously born, that whole purpose of your life is now come. I want you to return to civilization. No longer do we want you to live out here in the wilderness and I want to, I want you to do something that had never ever been done before. I want you to baptize people. I want you to put them down under the water in my name that they'll be bury their old life and they'll be a people ready for the Lord. So John comes in from the wilderness. The word of the Lord had came to him. John, this is, this is your moment. So in verse 3, we'll go to verse 3 again. It came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Uh, as it is written in the book of the, the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. You can read this in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 40. And every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. In other words, this is going to be a very decisive moment in history. Those that are going to get... Uh, a relationship with God and those that are going to be cut off who thought that they did have uh, the religious leaders at the time. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth uh, good fruit, uh, not, I'll say it again, which bringeth not forth good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into fire. And it goes on a lot more about it. And we know that he ended up baptizing Jesus. So maybe going back to my theme today, just thinking about when the word of the Lord comes to us and sometimes it's just almost miraculously timing. I write down a few of sayings of when things either happen or don't happen. One is that it happened by chance. What, or we say the saying is, what is the chance of that happening? Something that was so almost impossible that it did happen and we say, what is the chance? Another one is, uh, so close and yet so far. Got almost there, but not quite there. Another one is, um, a close miss is as good as a mile. Even though it's a close miss, it might as well have been a mile miss. So, um, um, another one we have to talk about something hanging in the balance. Could go either way. And, uh, Many of us and all of us sitting here today that are baptized and filled with the Spirit can maybe think of moments in your life when it could have gone this way or it could have gone that way, but in particular I'm talking about whether you came to the Lord or whether you didn't come to the Lord. Maybe there were moments when it hung in the balance. You could have gone that way or you could have gone that way. And um, 
Again, I was just saying to my wife uh, last few weeks ago or somewhere, I just said, I wonder what my chances of being converted would have been if I was older. Because I know in this generation now, trying to witness the people in their 30s and their 40s, people sort of established in life, the local bank manager, the local school teacher, you know, a lot of a lot of us come out of maybe a bit of a rougher background than that. To try to convert, convert them, wow, it ain't it easy. They don't find it easy. Their pride it gets in the way. You know, so we don't see a lot of those people come. I'm thinking, wow, I'm glad I was only 17. And even then I look at my, my chances, it was touch and go a couple of times whether I would come to the Lord or whether I couldn't. Particularly that time between when I got baptized and when I received the Holy Spirit. I've, I was a bit disillusioned by what I got to at that point where I thought I was saved, or I was told that I was saved, when I made, gave my heart to Jesus at the Baptist church. And then I got baptized, and that night I did not receive the Holy Spirit. And I went into a bit of a tailspin for seven weeks. And I, I look back on it and I think, if my mum and dad had not kept going, I was sort of the initial one who started it, and then I faded out of the picture, and they took it up. And it was seven weeks to the day that I got baptised, I won't go through all that, that they put the hard word on me to go to a meeting that night. And I didn't want to go to the meeting. I've been saying all day, I don't want to go. So what would happen if my dad didn't come in quite angry and say, you are going almost? I think about, wow, I could have, I could have never got saved. I could have gone on being disillusioned. So there are moments when you need the word of the Lord to come to you and say, look, I've got a job for you to do, you've got, or you've got to do something. Let's have a look at Second Kings and chapter 8, a little example, one of my favourite ones on what I call timing. There's lots of them, but um, just one here, Second Kings and chapter 8. So the story of the Sarah, uh, the, um, not the Sarah Phoenician one, the uh, Shunammite woman and um the lady who uh, made the little um the little bedroom in the wall near a house for the prophet Elisha and how that he would go past their home and she recognized that he was a godly man and made him this little room and put a bed in it and a table and a lamp and a chair and whenever he came past he would uh, call in there it's like a little um bed and breakfast room just down there we could free of charge and um and then Elisha had asked through his servant, what does the lady want? Does she want some money? Does she want me to mention her before the king or something else she want? And the prophet said, no, all she wants, not that she'll ask you for it, all she wants is a child. And she can't, she hasn't had any up until now. And he said, you call, you call the woman in. And while he was just lying on the bed that she'd provided, he said, According to the time of life. In other words, nine months as we would say now, you shall embrace a son. She was sort of almost say, don't promise me something, you know, that might not happen. No, basically it's going to happen. And it did happen. And then later on, of course, we know the little child, or maybe it's a little boy by that time, he was out in the field and we don't know exactly what happened. His son stroke and he died. And uh, she went to the prophet. The prophet came and he, uh, he raised the little boy from the dead. It was sort of um, this whole miraculous story. But it doesn't finish there. There's this other little story here 
about the same set of people. Second um, Kings chapter 8 verse 1. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn, or live, whithersoever thou canst sojourn, wherever you can find a place to live. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall, it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose and did uh, after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. During that time, Elisha died. It came to pass on the seventh year end, at the seventh year's end, that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines and went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. So she wanted, I almost could sort of think, well, you could imagine the king would say, seven years? And you're going to come back and now want it back again? You're the one that left. You know, somebody else has got it now. All the things that normally would have happened. And the king talked to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king, how he restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for a house. That's called timing. Seven years later, right on time, this woman walks in when Gehazi is telling the miraculous story of her child. Um, and he cried unto the king for a house and for a land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is that woman. This is the woman. And this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruit of the field since the day that she left the land even until now. She didn't just get her land back. She got seven years of crops from it. So you talk about the blessing, but again, I just sort of think this was a very godly woman, and she started off by doing something really godly years before when uh, she recognized who Elisha was, and at no expense to him, and even maybe had to work. Her husband doesn't sound like all that so encouraging, actually. I think she had to work her husband over a bit of time, even with the death of her son. He sort of left it to her, oh, you, you go and do something about it. And uh, we see here that God greatly rewarded this woman. But talking, as I said, about timing, how how close was that? Let's have a look in Matthew 19. Here's an example the other way, where somebody had this wonderful chance to become one of the Lord's disciples. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, and he blew it. Matthew 19, and we'll just start reading in verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now this guy, as you read through the story, he has a problem with the word good. Everything to him had to be either good or bad. The trouble in if you divide your life into good and bad and you're thinking about people, then you that one there, he's bad. Or that one there, she's good. And you sort of divide people up into good and bad. He may be thought, in this, well, I'm good. I'm a good person. And so that's how he starts off. 
And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good that but one, that is God. But if but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Now you might say, well, hang on a second, Jesus was good. But what Jesus was doing is making a point, you think you're good. That's the problem. You think you're good, then you've come to me, you talk about how I'm good. Don't do that. If you want to talk about what's good, and don't think about yourself being good, God is good. That's what's good. Forget about whether this person's good or bad. God is good. And you've got to start from there, where if you come to him when you think you're good, you're mostly not going to get anywhere. You need to come to God as a sinner. You need to admit that you're not right. And as I said about religious people, that can be their biggest problem, is that they think they're good. And therefore they never get beyond that. They just immediately wanting to tell you how good they are, and uh, that is a problem. He said unto him, uh, at the end of verse 17, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He said unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. He starts quoting some of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. All Ten Commandments. But all of a sudden, he slips in a commandment that is not one of the ten. So it's part of the law, but it's not actually one of the ten. And the one at the end is there, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. As I said, I got a feeling this guy had a problem with loving his neighbor as himself, and that's why the Lord threw that one in as well, because he was judgmental about people being good or bad, and in particular that he was good, that was, he certainly arrived at that point. But, um, so anyhow, he then says, all these things I've kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? So he was sort of really trying to get to the point where Jesus, at some point here, you're going to declare me good. Whatever you come up with, I'm going to say I've done it, and I am good. You're good, and I'm good. Aren't we good? Sort of thing. Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, that thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard that song, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He never realized that he only had two bob, that's all he had, compared with what the Lord was offering him. And most people don't realize that. They knock God back for for some part of their life they're trying to hang on to, which is really not worth anything. They think, oh, I can't give that up. can't give up the old church. My minister's a lovely man. You know, I can't do this, I can't do that. Or, you know, what, I've got to give up something? What, you, you want me to give up smoking? You want me to give up drinking? You know, I like doing those sort of things. I want to give up my mates? No, I can't do that. So people lose out on... He could have been one of the great stories of, of, a, of a converted person in the Bible. He could have been one of those who just gave up everything. Whatever. Look, we look at Zacchaeus, who was the, um, the tax collector. And when the Lord called him out of the sycamore tree, he said, salvation has come to this guy. And the guy said, I'm going to give back fourfold anything that I've ripped anybody off and do this and do that. He just sacrificed it all. I found the truth. And, you know, when you come to the Lord, 
you've got to recognise that moment of the calling. It might only ever come once, might only be there for five minutes, and you everything's, like I said before, hanging in the balance, whether you're going to listen or whether you're not going to listen. This was his moment. This rich young man, it was his moment. He thought he could knock everything on the head and that the Lord would end up saying, you don't have to do anything, you're a very good person, just keep on being a good person and you'll go to heaven. And he didn't. He saw that this guy had a, something that he was quite prepared to put in front of that and that was his wealth. If the young man had agreed, the Lord might, you never know, the Lord might have said, well, I'm just so glad you're prepared to do that, but you don't actually have to do it. Well, I just wanted to see whether you were prepared to do it or not. I don't know. But he wasn't prepared to do it. And he went away and he missed his moment when the word of the Lord came to him. Because that's what, he came to the Lord, but the word of the Lord came to him. And in the end, he didn't make, didn't make the grade. Let's have a look at an example where it went the other way. And that's in Luke chapter 5. The calling of the four of the apostles there. And just a different attitude. Luke chapter 5, and just verse 1, came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, that's on Jesus, to hear the word of the Lord, he stood by the lake of Genesaret, or the Sea of Galilee as we call it, and he saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon, Simon Peter as we know him, and prayed or asked him that he would thrust out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. The word of the Lord came to Peter on the Sea of Galilee, not in the wilderness in this case, but the word of the Lord had come to him. He wasn't thinking about God, I'm sure. Wasn't even thinking that was going to be a great day. It actually been a lousy night anyhow where they'd caught nothing. So he's mostly already grumpy, he was tired, he was fed up, and this preacher guy, confiscates his boat and he is what we call a captive audience he's there with Jesus in the boat and he has to listen and the word of God he didn't know that at first but the word of God had come to him and Simon answered and said unto him master sorry verse 4 and when he had left speaking he said unto Simon launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught or to catch some fish and Simon answered and said unto him, No man ever spake like you. That's what he's really saying here. I never ever heard anything like this before in my life. Master, we've taught all the night and we've taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. So there's a little bit of a difference between Peter and, and the, the rich young man. He sort of kept blocking and eventually missed out. And here's Peter saying, Look, everything tells me that that's not going to work. Try it all night. They don't, wouldn't say they're not on the bite. They were catching with a net. But whatever it was, they're just not there. But he said, something's happened here. While I've been sitting here in the boat listening to you, something's happened to me. You're somebody that I'll listen to. You're somebody that I'm going to do. Try what you're saying. Maybe I wasn't that confident it would work. But if you... This person who's just spoken all, we don't have a, any record of what Jesus said. would have been fantastic if we'd have that sermon in the boat, but we haven't got it. But it was enough to convert or change Peter's direction. Verse 6, And when they had done this done, they enclosed or caught a great multitude of fish. 
and their net break. And they beckoned to their partners, there's James and um, John, which in the other ship, and they would come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So, a little bit different to the good, good, rich young man. Everything was good, good, good. Peter's saying, bad, bad, bad. You got the wrong guy. You know, rough old fisherman. I'm sure he believed, we know he did that come out in, uh, when he had the vision of the, of the sheep being let down in, uh, in Acts chapter 10 of the conversion of Cornelius. He quoted how that he'd always kept the Old Testament food laws and never eaten anything. So there's not, not as though he didn't have the Jewish way, but he mostly would have said, look, I'm not all that religious. And he looked at himself, maybe he's rough, and he said, I'm a sinner. And, you know, that's a great moment. If anybody will only get to this point, you'll get somewhere with God. If you're going to come to God with your goodness, forget it. He's not interested in your goodness, not interested in your religious history of you did this and you did that. He would far rather you come and said, I'm a sinner. I need help. You know, and maybe even like Peter, surely you don't want me. I'm too bad. And the Lord, the moment you talk like that and believe it in your heart, he says, you're the one I want. I want people that will humble themselves and admit that they need God, they need the salvation of God. Don't quote to me all how good you are. I did, like the young rich man, oh, I did that, I did that. I've done all that. I've been good. I've always been good, is what he was saying. And... um so it would not have impressed Peter if he had um, done a lot of other sort of miracles, but catching all those fish, Peter understood. So when you come in contact with the Lord, the miracles will be there for what you need, for whatever you need, the miracles will be there. It's things that will be a revelation to you. Um, and then in verse 9, and he, he was astonished, that is Peter, and all that were with him at the draft, the fish, which they had taken. So was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. They basically had no idea what that meant, but it sounded interesting. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all. What What did Jesus ask the rich young man to do? Really just the same thing. I want you to forsake it all. If only you realize the riches that I'll give you. If only you will forsake it all. People want to hang on, as I said, particularly religious people, want to hang on to some of their old ways or the old church. You're mucking it up. You're, you're confusing things. You sort of want a bit of this and a bit of that. Two bob each way, as they say. No, that doesn't work. You've got to renounce it all. Burn your bridges. Start again. Did the old church tell you the truth? No, they most certainly didn't. Did they tell you you need to be baptized to be saved? Did they tell you you need to speak in tongues to receive the Holy Spirit and without it you won't be saved? Oh, they didn't tell you that. And yet you've got a loyalty to them. They were not faithful to you. Why would you have a loyalty to them? Where did you hear the truth? Who actually told you what the Bible should, said you should do? If you did have an allegiance, surely it would be to those who tell you the truth. So therefore... Everybody at some point, religious and non-religious, if you're in the drug scene, in the, if you're an alcoholic, if you just 
nobody in particular, just an ordinary person. Whatever it is, you've got an old life that you have to forsake it all. You have to turn your back on the whole lot and say, now I'm going to start again. And I'm going to hand over to the Lord. And God, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. That's called repentance, by the way. You have a change of heart, a change of direction. And then you find out about water baptism where you can bury that old way of life. You should rush to get into it. We haven't got quite ready there. But if you want to rush out there, we're not going to object. Get baptized. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you'll know you're right with God. So they they forsook all and they followed him. It always fascinates me that it's the best catch they ever had. You talk about the riches of the rich young man. This was riches for Peter. This was richness, a, a, a catch that I'd never seen. They left them there. They had found something better. Now, I was thinking about a couple of other testimonies. Brother Jed doesn't mind me commenting on um, on part of his testimony. Talk about timing. He was just talking about uh, earlier on, and it was um, a guy called Max Fitzgerald who was a friend of uh, Jed's, and uh, they were both lived in Dubbo. And Brother Jed, when he got witness to, was up at Catherine. I won't go through all of his testimony, quite miraculous again, uh, where he heard about speaking in tongues. He went up to Darwin and uh, got baptised, got spirit-filled. And uh, there's a guy back in Dubbo who uh, had sort of handed a Bible, handed Jed a Bible and said, you ought to read this. And uh, he was a bit of a rough guy. They all worked out at the abattoirs. And uh, so when Jed came to the Lord, he thought, I'm going to write to that guy and I'm going to tell him what's happened to me. Because he said that I ought to, I ought to seek out God and that the Bible had the answer or things along that line. So he wrote this letter. What was the guy's name? Graham. He wrote the letter to Graham down in Dubbo from Catherine down to Dubbo in New South Wales. Anyhow, Max Fitzgerald was another one of the young guys there that knew Jed. And, uh, he was hitchhiking into town from the abattoirs. His car had broken down, getting fixed up. And Graham drove past and he offered him a lift. And he said to, uh, to, uh, to, um, Max, he said, where are you going? Well, Max said to him, where are you going? That's right. He said, I'm going to the pub. And, uh, and Max said, oh, oh, I'll come too. Sort of a favorite place for all of them. We'll go to the pub. And he said, Graham said, on the way there though, I want to drop in home and I want to, he was a butcher. I want to leave my knives and all that sort of stuff at home and then we'll go on to the pub. But as he came out, he checked the letterbox and in the letterbox, in the letterbox was Jed's letter. Jed's letter about how he'd come to the Lord. So he drives on towards the pub and he hands the letter to Max and said, read this, read it out loud so we can both hear it. It was all about how he'd come to the Lord. But in the letter, Jed had sort of hinted that Graham had directed him that way, well, in front of Max Fitzgerald, he didn't want to admit that, oh, no, that's not true. I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to bring him to God he, as a bikey or whatever he was. It wasn't very good. It wasn't very cool. Um, but Max read the letter. Max read what had happened to Jed. He then caught a number of flights right up through Darwin to get down to where Jed was in Catherine, and it was Max was the one that came to the Lord. But the chances of that being picked up on the side of the road and so on. And that was his moment when the word of the Lord came to 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 Max. Actually, Helen and I happened to be there. Jed had been in the Lord about a month by that time. 
we actually happened to be there when when Max came to the Lord, and uh, we'd we'd actually called into Mataranka Homestead for those who know the Northern Territory, and uh, we'd rung ahead from Tennant Creek, and rang up. It's a sort of a hotel-y type thing, hot springs in the ground, all that, and um, I want to book in as a my wife and I and three kids. This is 1976, by the way, uh, and um, they said, "Oh no, you don't have to book. No, no worries." Always got plenty of room. You can guess what happened. We get up to Mataranka home, quite tired, sort of late in in the day. I know we've booked out three big tourist buses that come in. Booked us out. And, of course, I had my grizzle and they sort of rolled their eyes back. Tough. You know, you missed out. So what are we going to do? We haven't got anywhere. We've got three kids. And and then I said to Helen and the kids, if we can just have have a bit of tea, let's push on to to Catherine, which was only a bit over an hour, a couple of hours drive or whatever it was. And we got in quite late that night, maybe eight or nine o'clock in, in the dark. I remember coming through the trees into the, oh, Dot McClellan was a, a local woman that was in the fellowship and the one that initially witnessed the Jed. She was having a barbecue in the backyard. And we go through the backyard and, and Jed and Max turned up. First time Max had sort of really done anything. And he turns up with Jed to this barbecue. And we got talking, I was very excited about hearing Jed's testimony and talking to Max and so on. And another girl comes to me, I won't go into that right now. But it was the most funny night because over the back fence of Dot McClellan's place was a drive-in theatre and it had this huge screen right over the fence and the film they were showing that night was Jaws. <laughs> so I'm trying to talk to Max and the next one is this white point of shark. I was charging out. It was very, no sound, of course, just the image of it. So I do particularly remember that night. And Jed and Max and this other girl, Vicky, ended up going up to Darwin when we were there. I remember I, ma- I baptised uh, uh, Max and so on and so it goes on. So but I just think of that, that, that timing of Max reading that letter. It wasn't even to him. And even when you think about Jed coming to the Lord, it was through a letter Another person he knew, his brother had come to the Lord in Melbourne, and again it was Jed that came to the Lord. So I just think all those sort of timings are fantastic. Um, I've totally run out of time and only used about 1% of the scriptures I've got written down here. Um, let's have a little look at the Apostle Paul, maybe just in finishing, in Acts chapter 24. Even that conversion, absolutely fantastic how Paul got converted. But just um, Paul preaching the gospel, Acts chapter 24, and um, just in verse 24, 24, 24, and after certain days when Fes- Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he, he sent for Paul, heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have convenient season, I will call for thee. Um, there's no record ever that Felix came to the He was a Roman, by the way, a Roman general. Paul was a prisoner. And uh, he obviously would have known a lot about the Jewish people. His wife was a Jew. But isn't it wonderful what Paul reasoned about? Righteousness, temperance, or self-control, and judgment to come. 
And as he went through all, I'm sure, some fantastic scriptures, Felix trembled at the word of God. It doesn't sound like he got there, does it? That was his moment when the word of God came to him. I'm going to finish with one more testimony. Mick Sly. Who knows Mick Sly? A lot of people know Mick Sly. His testimony to me is one of the most miraculous chance in a million times of him coming to a brought up in Broken Hill. Um, as a child uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, he suffered from, we won't go into detail, from the Catholic priest. So he was sort of carrying quite a lot of baggage, a uh, bit of a rough guy, came down to Adelaide. He ended up being a bouncer on Hindley Street at one of the nightclubs. And one night there was a young girl there that was causing a ruckus on a Saturday night and uh, he was called in to kick her out because she was kicking up her fuss. And when he got her outside, she said to him basically in sort of yelling, you don't understand, I was a Christian and I've left and God's not happy with me or words along this line and, you know, that's why I'm what I am and raving on and started talking about killing herself and, and Mick said, look, no, no, don't do any of that and you don't need to go down this train. In the end, because she's sort of threatening to do that, he gave her his phone number and said, look, if you need me, give me a ring. This is late on a Saturday night. Give me a ring and I'll, I'll see if I can help you. Well, she did ring him the next morning. Could you take me to the Vogue Theatre? Because that's where I came to the Lord. So Mick has no idea what anything to do with the Vogue Theatre, brings this girl into the meeting. I don't know what happened to the girl, but Mick came to the Lord. Now, what are the chances of that? He walked into the Vogue, I've come home. This is what I'm looking for. All the people said, Amen. Amen. 